1: It's Rico Daily. I'm Ronnie Mola. If you listen to a lot of comedy podcasts, especially ones by cis-hetero men, you may have noticed a trend in the types of products they promote.
0: All right, guys, this episode is sponsored by Blue Chew. Let's talk about something we could all use more of right now, that's sex. Now you can increase your performance and get that extra confidence in bed. Two out of three men will experience some form of hair loss by the time they're 35, and there are only two FDA-approved medications that can prevent hair loss. KEEPS offers both. KEEPS offers a simple, scratch-free way to keep your hair.
1: Hair loss supplements, erectile dysfunction treatments, they've always been sold to men as they get older. But now younger guys are getting these pills and they're getting them online. And if you listen closely, there's a feeling of anxiety in the air.
0: 66% of
1: men start losing their hair hair by the age of 35. I had to go to a doctor's office and wait in an awkward
0: line and have a conversation with a female nurse. I'm not gonna lose this hair. I saw some of my hair going. I was like, I gotta get on top of this shit. I am not to be a baldy out here. My ears stick out way too much for me to do that. I have gotten them delivered. And I have chewed my way to sexual confidence, brother. No doctor's visits, no awkward conversions. Ships right to your door in discreet packaging. People won't know.
1: So are millennial men okay? And how did solutions for their deepest insecurities become such a hot market for startups?
0: So the way we got here really goes back to the 90s and the origins of the internet.
1: That's Jesse Barron. He's been following the changes in the male healthcare market for New York Magazine.
0: There were a lot of companies that were selling counterfeit medications online, and it was this shady kind of gray market space that people were very uneasy about. And in 2008, Congress passed a law after the death of like an 18-year-old guy who had ordered Vicodin online that really cracked down on these companies. Uh, with the internet and technological advances, we now find uh, that drugs are accessible by the rogue pharmacies. And a uh, problem is one of uh, of enormous importance after 2008 what started to happen was technology started to get really good really fast so iphone apps became really reliable and video conferencing and facetime a lot of companies realized that the next frontier would be to sell medications the same way you bought warby parker sunglasses someone was going to do that for medications and the legal framework was really unclear like In Texas, you had to have an initial visit with a doctor before you could get medication. In Nebraska, it was different. In California, it was different. And it becomes almost like epistemological. It's like, well, what is a visit? Is a FaceTime call a visit? Like, is a message a consultation? And so what these companies realized was that the laws had been written, in many cases, before the iPhone, in some cases before the internet. So they started to look at these regulations and companies started to realize that they would be able to enter this market without changing the existing law, but just claiming that what they were doing was protected and saying, okay, you know what? I think in Texas, it's, you know, a first visit, but it doesn't say in person. So I think we're good in Texas. So this is a case where it's not like every state has explicitly allowed you to order medication with an an app. It's just that the laws are written vaguely enough that all of these companies have roared into this space and now it's too late to stop them.
1: Oh, interesting. And a lot of these services were sort of surprised by the high demand they were getting. Uh, you describe this untapped market as the market of quote, male anxiety.
0: Can you elaborate? Elaborate on male anxiety? Yes. How, how much time do we have? I, I, I think <laughs> the short version of it. <laughs> the short version. I mean, so I, I think um, what, what I mean by that, um, by talking about this new anxiety among young men, is that, um, and that's really to do with this product for erectile dysfunction, sildenafil, which is the core of the revenue of Hims. This brand, for people who aren't familiar with it, is a direct consumer telemedicine company that went public in January of this year. So they offer medication and some medical services via a really well-designed iPhone app. Most of their business, despite everything they say and whatever they're doing on their website and all the different stuff they offer, the core of their business is Sildenafil. If you go between the lines of their regulatory filings and disclosures to investors, that's what it is. And so the question is, Hims has almost a half a million customers. Roman has maybe another few hundred thousand. Blue Chew has a bunch of customers. There's uh, uh, competitors that are offering similar products. So there's maybe several hundred thousand or millions of guys who are taking Sildenafil and the generic form of Cialis. And these guys are young. Hims's core customer is under 40. So why are hundreds of thousands of guys in their teens and twenties taking this medication that was developed and marketed to guys in their 60s and 70s. That's the core mystery.
1: Right. I was going to ask you, uh, like, is erectile dysfunction actually on the rise? Like, what do doctors tell you?
0: So I think that what's happening is it's a case where a combination of a social and cultural and psychological condition is being medicalized and pharmaceuticalized at a profit. I speak to several prominent urologists and researchers in the piece, and th- the research shows that Erectile dysfunction among young men has risen a little bit in the last 20 years. But the methodology for a lot of those surveys is men self-reporting in order to obtain Viagra. So in order to get these drugs, you have to say you have erectile dysfunction. So yes, there's clearly demand for these drugs, but whether there's like this epidemic of this disease, I don't know. I think it's more likely there's this kind of pervasive anxiety that has to do with the role of masculinity in the culture and with dating and with the use of antidepressants and the side effects of antidepressants, this sort of uh, combination of factors that are much more complicated and social and cultural that are being solved with this simple medical solution at a profit.
1: Let's talk about this male lifestyle industry. What did it look like before and how is the internet, you know, sort of destabilizing it.
0: I think that the 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 way to to tell that story is uh to start with a really traditional male lifestyle brand. Playboy.
1: The one magazine that brings it all together for you each month.
0: What Playboy was about was seducing women. It was to teach young men how to be interesting, how to have stuff to talk about. That was like why you had all the features and articles. It was to show you how to dress in the advertisements. It was to make you uh, sophisticated about art and jazz and wine. And I mean, all of this stuff now sounds incredibly kind of swine-like and outdated and grotesque. But that was the idea, is that the the reason that you made a male lifestyle brand was that it was a, a, a tool for seduction of women. Why did you need the convertible to pick her up? on the date. Like, why did you need the watch to communicate that you had money? Why did you need the scent, you know, to appeal to her, to attract her? When I was in high school, the slogan for Axe body spray was spray more, get more.
1: Spray more, get more.
0: The Axe effect. And it's like, get more what? I mean, it's so grotesque. And the idea of doing that now is unimaginable. That started to change in the last maybe 15 or 20 years. And I think there were a couple of things that happened. One thing was that The internet kind of fractured the culture, so it was no longer practical from a marketing standpoint to address this monolithic group of, like, straight men. You know, you were addressing these different sort of subgroups because advertisers allowed you to target those. And the Great Recession, which sort of dismantled a lot of the more stable blue-collar work, and then the Me Too movement, which really forced everyone— Or forced men, especially because women already knew, but, you know, to really interrogate what was underneath the entitlement to be pursuing and seducing and trying to get uh, women into bed. So it was no longer possible in, like, 2012 to have a brand that was all about seducing women.
1: So let's go back to Hims. How is their marketing
0: different? So the big difference, I think, between the way Hims talks to a customer and the way Playboy or Gillette or Axe talks is... Hymns is like very gentle, very unaggressive. It's not about pursuing women or having a big car or a job or any of these social cues that male brands typically use for their customers. Hymns is purely about um, like this sort of uh, gentle, sweet masculinity that's very unthreatening. It's very post me too masculinity. It's like post aggression, it's post macho in a certain way. Hymns kind of launched in 2017 with this campaign of ads on Instagram and in the subway, and their big thing was like pictures of cacti uh, as their sort of representation of the erection. So they would be like this cactus against a kind of desaturated pink background with a slogan about erectile dysfunction. So they spent an incredible amount of money, they got the best designers who do millennial direct-to-consumer brand. So it's like all the same people who made like Sweetgreen and Warby Parker and Recess and all of these brands. Those were the same people designing for HIMSS.
1: So is HIMSS for millennials? Who was HIMSS
0: for? So HIMSS, in the words of one of its early designers, is for the under 40 urban or coastal aware of culture guy with a diverse cohort. The brand is for young men, and I think that's really crucial. The average age of the customer for Roman, which is hims' biggest competitor, is mid-40s, it's 46. And the CEO of Hims has been on calls with Wall Street investors where he's like, they'll be like, who's your customer? And he'll be like, teens, 20s, 30s. It's young guys. And the reason that's so important is that in their vision, this company that started with generic Viagra In their fantasy of what's going to happen, generic Viagra is to them what the paperback book was to Jeff Bezos. It's just the first thing that they're going to sell, and then they'll use that to build a whole healthcare empire.
1: So beyond hair loss and erectile dysfunction, HIMSS wants to be bigger in the healthcare space. What do they hope to offer? What's the Amazon equivalent here?
0: They want to offer every medical service short of emergency medicine. That's the short answer. So... In the same way that you go on the app and get pills for erectile dysfunction or for hair loss, uh, you can already go on the app and make an appointment with a virtual therapist. You can get antidepressant medications like Lexapro and Wilbutrin. They have this sort of sister brand that they launched in 2018 called HERS. Uh, They do birth control. They do the same antidepressants, the same therapy, So far, hers is a really small part of the business. The majority of the business is still for men, but their ultimate goal is that there will be as many women as as men. Mm -hmm. And so gradually what they're going to try to do is offer you like this closed ecosystem where everything is cross-sold to you. So you'll go see your Hims psychiatrist and they'll prescribe Wilbutrin and you will fill that on the Hims pharmacy app. And then you go see your Hims primary care doctor and they recommend something else and that's mailed to you as well by him. So their idea is that they're going to be this sort of one-stop shop for healthcare except for emergency medicine.
1: And if they do achieve their goal, what do you think this means for the future of healthcare?
0: It means that healthcare is becoming a a consumer product where you have a instead of having a relationship with a hospital or a primary care group or an insurer, you will have a relationship with this Silicon Valley startup. Now, obviously, it's not like the healthcare system now is so great. It's like a complete catastrophe. But I think the risk of stuff like this is that you get enough people to get most of their healthcare on an iPhone app. And then it sort of leaves everyone else who might have more complicated healthcare needs or need more expensive treatments or whatever, they're gonna be excluded from that ecosystem. They'll still rely on like insurance and all that stuff. And so it'll increase the already two-tiered system that we have, where it'll be like young, healthy, coastal, diverse, woke millennials or whatever, however the guy explained it, getting all of their healthcare on this like really beautifully designed app that looks like a sweet green menu. And then everyone else will be Using this like increasingly broken, opaque, horrible system. That that's the risk of turning healthcare into this direct-to-consumer lifestyle product.
1: Thanks for joining us today, Jesse. Thank you so much. My name is Ronnie Mola. Thank you for tuning in to Rico Daily. This episode was produced by Alan Rodriguez Espinosa and engineered by Christian Ayala.